Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Fellows, I'll tell you what, we're getting very slick, very big, very international. We bring this uh, to you today with uh, Warren, me, Kevin, and our producer in Toronto, which means we are we are spanning across four time zones now, Kevin, okay? okay you're, you're, you're in about your eighth different time zone. If you're ready to go, we got everyone in Canada covered, so let's do this. Last Rock. Eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. The line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, here we go again, fellas, with another uh, show, like I said, of Inside Curling. We're doing more than just one a week now because there's so much going on in Canada, of course, and around the world. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, thank you to our sponsors uh, who are, uh, of course, supporting curling, and, and we'd like you to support them as well. That's Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Goldline, Nestle Boost, and Meridian. On the show today, what's happening around the curling world, which there is a lot. The European Championships from Lillehammer, Norway. We're going to get an update there. The Olympic trials are on a course in Saskatoon, uh, and they're great. I've been watching a bunch of that. Another one of the hot rock topics is we got a good letter. A lady who took me on. It hurt my feelings, Warren. Okay, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> a letter from Chris Marino. Apparently, she's she's pretty active uh, with with us uh, in the house. Kevin, two really good interviews. That you did, the first with Brad Gushu and Mark Nichols, and the other one with Brad Jacobs and Mark Kennedy. So let's get into it. Uh, Around the Curling World is brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. Let's not forget, you got to be 19 to play. So let's first go to you, Warren. Uh, You're going to give us an update on what's going on over in Europe. Okay, Jim. Well, as you mentioned, the European Championships are going on in Littlehammer, Norway. They've completed the round robin and are now into the playoff round. Starts today. The top four teams in both the men's and women's divisions will advance the playoffs, and team one will play team four. Two will go against three, with the winners playing for the gold medal, and the losers will go for the bronze. Interesting, European Championships actually have three divisions, A, B, and C. Right now, they're playing the A and B divisions, 10 teams in each division. The C division will be played later in the spring. And teams go up and down from division to division. So 
Next summer, two teams will go down from A to B and two from B will go up to A and the same thing will happen between C and B. So an interesting concept that uh, I think needs to be expanded, but we'll talk about that another day. From our point of view, the main interest in this event worldwide is the fact that nations qualify for the men's and women's worlds in 2022. On the women's side, the top seven teams qualify for the women's worlds in Prince George. And on the men's side, the top eight teams will go to the men's worlds in Las Vegas. So here's how they're standing at the conclusion of the round robin. Eve Muir ahead of Scotland finished in first place with a record of 8-2. and two. And then right behind her at 7-2, Russia and Sweden, Kovaleva and Kasselberg, no strangers. And then number four will be Germany. Interesting enough, Switzerland, Terrazzoni, did not make the playoffs. She's in the fifth spot, also at 6-3. and three. And then the final two teams that qualify for the Women's Worlds, Italy and Turkey. And Turkey's an interesting one, if I'm not mistaken, I think that is the first time that Turkey will play in either the men's or women's worlds. Over on the men's side, again, no surprises, Scotland again in first place. And guess who that would be? Bruce Mowat. No kidding. Right behind him, Nicodine at 7-2. Mowat, incidentally, was undefeated, 9-0. The only team in both men's and women's undefeated. And then in third place, a bit of a surprise, Italy. No stranger there, Joe Rotanos. Again, no stranger to us. He was at 6-3, and three, and then Norway into the playoffs for the first time in quite some time at 5-4. and four. And interesting, Switzerland, Peter de Cruz, he finished in fifth as well, 5-4. and four. And the final three teams to make the world men's will be Denmark, Czech Republic, and Germany. So over the next couple of days, they'll get into the playoffs. And the women's side, Scotland will go against Germany in one versus four game. Russia will take on Sweden in two versus three. And the men's side will be Sweden versus Italy in the one versus four. And Scotland will go against Norway in the two versus three. And, of course, the two winners will play for the gold, and the losers will play for the bronze. So some interesting things over there. I guess uh, the surprise there, Kevin, I think would be the performance of the two Swiss teams, neither one of them making the playoffs. Kevin, you want to make some comments on that? Yeah, I, I definitely would, especially with uh, with Turkey getting in um, on the women's side. I think that's absolutely fantastic. On this show, we talk so much about the the growth of curling internationally, and there's no more proof than that. And also with uh, the Italian men doing so well, no, you know, I, I've watched them for a long time, and they're very good. So it's not a huge surprise, but it might be a surprise to our our listeners. Um, the countries that are improving, getting better around the world, and uh, and I'm going to really enjoy watching uh, uh, Turkey um, at the World Championships. That's, that's a very unique and something that maybe 15, 20 years ago, we would never have dreamt that curling would grow in countries that don't seem like <laughs> curling powerhouses. And uh, they're coming along, which is great. Kevin, you're in Saskatoon uh, at the Olympic trials. Uh, there's two roles you're playing there, certainly as a, you know, a commentator and on this show. But your son's playing, Kev. Um, I, you know, I looked at the standings. And uh, must be tough to be a dad when when they're behind the eight ball. <laughs> well, you know, there's not much you can do from the stands, so you just have to, you know, cheer them on, and 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 they're doing the best they can. It's just a, a really tough week, and uh, you know, and we actually had a good chat with all of them last night, and uh, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, they're not <laughs> as a team playing as good as they they wanted to. That's for sure. So, team bought you, yeah, they're. Well, they're they're out of it, is what they are. But uh, let's let's start with the women's side, actually, because this is interesting. That basically uh, Tracy Fleury and Jennifer Jones they've separated themselves from the field. Uh, Tracy, as we're taping the show, 
undefeated and uh, Jennifer Jones with one loss. But at three losses, this is the interesting thing, pretty much the whole rest of the field. You've got, uh, other than uh, Rachel Holman and uh, and Kelsey Rock at four losses, but uh, you've got Walker, Harrison, Scheidegger, Anerson, and McCarvel all sitting at three losses for that third place. So uh, it's just going to be a real battle coming down the stretch to uh, to get that third playoff spot. I think you pretty much have to give um, first and second to, to Fleury and Jones, and that's no surprise. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. Uh, that's not a big a big shocker to uh, to have those two teams at the top. Tracy Fleury, um, way ahead in the skips numbers um, for the week, and she's just been absolutely phenomenal. and she, And she's been that way for the last few months. So good, good on them. On the men's side, uh, it's really starting to separate the top three this week. And once again, not a big surprise. You've got uh, Brad Goose, who actually lost a game against uh, Gunlickson last night. So uh, that was a kind of a upset i would say and then you've got uh, kevin cooey and brad jacobs um they're at the top uh all with one loss and then you do have though team McEwen playing really well mike's actually uh curling extremely well himself right now but there are two losses they need a little bit of help along with john epping so that's kind of where it's settling in but it's sure looking on the men's side that uh gushu cooey and jacobs will be in the in the playoffs all three curling really good and um that is an absolute toss-up as to who uh, will be going to Beijing. Um, right now, I think probably Brad Gushu's playing the best, but who's coming on strong is uh, Brad Jacobs. Kevin Cooey's team, they're, they're playing okay, but not great. But you never know with Kevin, right? With Kevin Cooey, he, he, he can come out of nowhere and get you. But uh, right now, I think uh, you've got to lean towards uh, the Brads, the two Brads, uh, one of them probably going to Beijing. Yeah, I agree with you, Kevin. I think right now those are the two best players from what I've seen. I, and I think Gushu at the moment probably has a little bit of an edge. He's been really, really solid. And as you mentioned, Kui, you never know with them. Uh, they could come on really strong. But I think it's pretty much a, a battle between those three teams. But I think on the women's side, um, I think it's it's pretty open territory. You mentioned Fleury and her percentages, but it's rather interesting that team – uh, they're playing well, but on occasion, I, I find that they, they make some very kind of what I would call strange calls. And uh, I can remember in one case uh, as well, Tracy whistled a, a stone through the house. I think it was in the 10th end. So they're probably the top of the pack right now, but they're not as solid, I think, as they need to to be assured of being uh, on the podium at the end of this thing. As far as the other teams are concerned, I think, uh, who knows? Uh, Jennifer Jones has been brilliant, but she's also been quite uh, dismal a couple of times. McCarvel has been somewhat consistent. That team could be very much be around come the end. But I think the the women's side, I wouldn't want to predict who's going to be the winner at the end of the day. Yeah, you know what? And you meant, you mentioned a little bit about uh, um, Tracy missing a draw, and actually Harrison uh, was splitting the house in the ninth against Flurry. And if she makes it, uh, Tracy wouldn't have had anything just an open uh, hit and stay, and then Harrison would have hit and stay for two points, and probably would have won the game, but threw it through the house. So uh, for our listeners, um, I had a really good talk with Darren Molding last night about the ice, and uh, later in the game, the last half of the game, if you take edge of twelve, some are way out. It's nice and keen. 14 and a half, something like that. No problem. Lots of curl. Great. If you take from center line to edge of four and play away from center, once again, 14 and a half. Really, really keen. Maybe even a little quicker than edge of 12 into the button. But if you go anywhere between, say, edge of eight or a little bit outside edge of eight to edge of four and throw it towards the button, you can throw 13, 12, eight. And it'll come down. If you throw a 14, a middle eight foot, 
you're way short. Brad Gushu last night against Gunlickson only had to draw the eight foot, but he couldn't go to the edge of 12 because there's a corner guard in the way. So he had to take like just outside edge of eight. He wasn't close. Like Brad Gushu, one of the best drawers ever, and he wasn't close. Missed it by a mile. So what is the thoughts uh, from Darren as to why that's happening? What's what's causing that? Well, he had lots of thoughts, um, but, the, but, but the bottom line is that the teams, it's really difficult to draw, say, a cross button. Like if you have to come kind of, there's a, a guard off center a bit, you have to come around it late in the game. It's super heavy if you, if you go middle, middle eight. And there's just been, that's the problem where there's been so many misses. And the same thing, Darren said that if, okay, you got to go around a corner guard to split the house and you take edge of four. Well, if that slides back a little into the heavy stuff, you might hog it. Because if you get in the keen stuff, which is what you expect, you throw it 14-5 or even 14-8, uh, Brad Thiessen and Carrick got a 15-1 to the T-line. So that's keen away from center. But if you slide uh, and it just gets out in the heavy stuff, you've hogged it. So that it's it's really tough, that little area. So this is something you know for our, our listeners to kind of pay attention to um, going into the weekend are these interesting parts of the ice and and if you see that player in the eighth end needing to go middle eight foot and draw the t-line pay attention because even the even a guy like brad gushu you know he missed that shot against gunlickson uh last night and, and ended up losing the game and it's happened a lot this week something for everybody to pay attention to the pressure right is can, can be unbearable and warren you brought up about the women's side that uh there's been some good games but there's been some not so good games and i don't think i've ever seen a bigger display of pressure than when I watched the Anerson Jennifer Jones draw. Uh, she got up six nothing, and Jones came all the way back. It appeared to me, Kevin, that there were just so many mistakes, and uh, in the end, it was like, okay, who's going to make the least amount of mistakes? And yeah, wasn't the final score in that one like ten to nine? Ten nine or something? Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, I mean, that's awesome. Like, you have no idea who's going to win or lose, and but it it, it it's it's not easy. The, the ice is not easy. It's uh, it's it's tough. You got to be really uh, cognizant as far as where you're holding the broom with draw weight. It, it can make you know ten feet of difference depending on what spot in the ice you are. So that's that that's that's tough. And there's going to be some big misses, and that's what we've seen so far. And it's kind of exciting that way. Everybody's not just lobbing the draws to the button at fifteen and a half seconds. It's not like that. It's 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 a lot more difficult. So this is like the old days when we had to deal with the frost lines in arena. It's kind of the same type of thing. You had to know where that line was, and if you didn't anticipate it, you uh, you were done. How did you handle pressure, Kevin? Well, as a young person, not that good. <laughs> and as you get a little older, it got a lot easier. Gee, I wonder how that works in life. <laughs> That's exactly the way it is, though. You know, it's a school of hard knocks, and the first couple of times you have to draw the button against a big game or a big win your my hands would sweat so much i couldn't hardly <laughs> grab the rock and uh, and then as you get older of course you've you've missed them and you've made them and you get more used to it and and actually when you get later in your career like something like say where brad gushu is right now or kevin cooey you relish making those shots you can't wait to make those big shots it's funny how it changes as as you grow and uh, mature as a person and i don't know if there's an answer to why a young person can handle the pressure better than an, another one. But certainly as you get older, everybody can handle it a little better because I guess you realize that you make some, you miss some. So just try your best and, you know, get that heart rate down and let her go. Uh, very good. Um, Hot Rock Topics is brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. 
Uh, I've, I've been looking forward to talking about this one, uh, fellas. What's happening with the curling club fees as they go up? Uh, we heard from Chris Marino before, and she sent us a note with an attached article uh, this week that indicated what happened at the Weston Club in Toronto when the golf side of the club decided to increase the curling dues. Uh, the article wasn't very flattering uh, towards them, but uh, it is what it is. So let's go over this note from Chris. Um, she says, I know it has been a number of years since Warren and Kevin have been a member of a curling club. And Jim Jerome, let me know if you've ever managed to throw your first rock. <laughs> uh, most, most clubs, I like this girl. I like her already. Most clubs raise fees annually and try to stay in line with inflation. I am, as you know, a member of the Leaside Curling Club in Toronto, which is a model club. Each club is catering to a different demographic, and the setup has developed with that in mind over the life of the curling club. Stick curling is likely the best bet for all three of you. You can enjoy it, the game again. Uh, that's from Chris. Oh, is that right, Chris? Is that right? I'm gonna. If she's standing on the ice when I throw my first rock, it's going to be at her feet. <laughs> she's in, she's insulting stick curlers. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's funny. Who wants to go first? Well, I'll jump in there because I, I know the history. So as you may recall, we talked a couple of weeks ago about curling clubs and the problems, and we talked about dues maybe not being high enough in many cases has caused the problem. And uh, a topic that she's brought up here is something we should have discussed, and it is the the joint facilities that exist to a very large degree in Ontario. I think there's a few in, in most parts of other provinces, but Ontario is where most of them are. They're joint golf and curling clubs. And there's always been a conflict between the golfers and the curlers, from my experience. And the fact is that the, the golfers are, are the mainstay of the club. They are the main financiers of it. And they, to some degree, resent the curlers and they feel that the curlers don't pay enough. And there's always been a, a, a challenge there. And uh, what happened with the Weston, according to the, the letter that was quite lengthy that was written, is uh, out of the blue, I guess, the golfing side of the club, that, that's the executive, decided they were going to raise the curling dues quite substantially. And as a result, a number of the curlers quit and said they weren't going to play anymore, and the result of that was the club then wants to shut down the curling section. So it's, it's an interesting challenge, and I, I think, again, it's one of these things, Ontario or anywhere else you are where there's a number of these facilities, I think there's really a need to bring all the parties together and again, to try to figure out some joint solutions as to how these combined curling and golf clubs can properly function together because it's been a conflict forever. Some of them, they get along fine, but certainly many of them do not. And I think with regard to the dues, there's a really a different set of dues being applied to the sport across the board, whether the club is uh, privately owned. I should stop using the word club. Facility is privately owned because that's part of the problem. Or whether or not it is virtually a public facility where there's a, a number of people have come together to form that club initially. And because they've built it maybe on property they had to buy, they're paying property taxes. Pretty near all of them are playing, paying big hydro bills. And my experience is that over the long haul, the curling club dues have never truly reflected the cost of running the business. And it has, in most cases, it hasn't allowed them to build any reserve fund. So all of a sudden, they've got to replace a chiller or some other aspect, and uh, bingo, there's no money to do it. Uh, it's also an issue with staff. It's hard for them to get good staff because, again, it's a six-month job. They can't pay them a lot because of, again, the due structure. 
And I know this the problem because, and Kevin can jump in here. I mean, we're both from Edmonton. We knew how we know how things have operated there, and I don't think there's a curling club in that Edmonton area that's ever overcharged for for their facilities. And the other thing that happens sometimes too, in a place like Edmonton, all of a sudden one club decides they're going to lower their fees, and as a result, bingo, a bunch jump over that club. They leave another club, and there's never been any real good cooperation from my experience. And I won't say everywhere, but for the most part with this. And it's a whole issue again, this cost factor. And, and interesting, did a little checking here. One of the local clubs here, you pay 350 bucks a year to play one game a week. Um, and, and look in comparison, uh, here in Vancouver, golf isn't overly expensive, but that would probably get you five rounds of golf. Um, I have another friend who has a granddaughter that's uh, nine years old playing hockey. They're, she pays $2,000 a year. So this whole issue of what curling clubs should be paying, charging, and the whole fee structure, I think, is, is again, it's a huge discussion. And uh, it's never been right from my point of view, and, I, and I'm not sure how you get it corrected. But that was the crux of this whole whole story, that Chris was kind of taking a little shot at us saying, yeah, but look at the Lee side. And, and, and I agree, there's a number of clubs doing really well and have everything that's structured properly. But I'd say they are in the minority, not the majority. What's your experience, Kevin? Well, first of all, in two weeks' time, I'm actually doing my yearly bond spiel in Minneapolis <laughs> for the Lupus Foundation. And I actually still, I still actually push out of the hack and slide. <laughs> so I'm not on the stick yet, Chris. I, I can still curl for another few years, but, but I appreciate the, the comment. Um, as far as the clubs go, I, I certainly think that curling is, is uh, a little bit too, too cheap. Um, I think over the next five years or something, clubs should be able to bump up the fees simply because uh, everything else is going up so much, uh, the hydro especially. Um, the costs are so, so big that, uh, you know, when you're talking about, if you compare it to golf or or, uh, or hockey, hockey's a good comparison because, of course, you've got an ice plant inside building, you know, the, kind of the same expenses that way. Um, so that's a good comparison. Figure skating, you know, you need to compare it to other sports, and, and uh, curling is certainly, certainly one of the cheaper ones. One thing when it comes to clubs, though, if these a private club that's you know they golf in the summertime, in the winter if you get rid of the curling, uh, what you're going to see affected is your food and beverage totals. Um, revenues go down immensely. Curlers like to have a pop or two and like to have dinners. Um, they they spend quite a lot uh, in the food and beverage side of your club. Um, so that's one thing that at the Derrick where I'm a member, so I am actually still a member of a curling club um, at the Derrick Curling Club and and golf course and it's 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 more than that there's an extra uh, physical fitness facility and and so on there there's uh, tennis being built there's badminton so it's a pretty extensive club at the derrick um curling club is uh, four sheets and it does really quite well and and it keeps the building really busy in the winter time on the food and beverage side and i think that's something that a lot of these private courses if they have trouble and end up getting rid of the curling they notice a big drop in the winter time because the golfers aren't golfing and then all of a sudden revenues go down uh, at that time of year. So that's something that they should, you know, concern themselves with. As far as the curling clubs that are just curling clubs, six months operating, they are just going to have to charge more to be able to, your point, Warren, build up the slush fund so that if the chiller goes down or the plant or whatever the case may be, you've got the money to repair. Kevin, so so the Derek, did, did you say they have four sheets? Yes, they had eight sheets way back in the day, but then uh, quite a few years ago, I, I don't know what year, um, they went down to four sheets, which I think was a really good decision. But what, what I wanted to ask you was, if you join the Derrick, 
uh, to golf, you're, I, I don't know what a share is there, but it's going to be in the thousands of dollars. Um, but if Curl, if you join the Derek to Curl, if you join the Derek to Curl, you don't pay a share, do you, like you do in golf? Well, there's different fee structures. You're right. So the golf is the most expensive by far. Yes, uh, you're bang on. I don't know the amount. We aren't golf members at the Derek, actually. Um, Sean is an athletic member, and I'm a social member. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, again, the, the, they vary, Jim, as to how they're structured. For the most part, however, the from my knowledge of it, that the curlers are a separate entity. But in some cases, Kevin suggests, there's options on how they can uh, be members. But I might add, Kevin... They had eight sheets of ice in my day at the Derrick, and the Derrick was the original Super League was at the Derrick, so that's a way back. It's time for In the House. Uh, this means we've got a guest or guests. It's brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got a couple stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online, of course, at goldlinecurling.com. Kev, you sat down with, uh, I'm just realizing this as you pointed it out to me, the two Brads and the two Marks, Brad Gushu and Mark Nichols, and of course, Brad Jacobs and Mark Kennedy. Uh, great interviews. Um, well, let's listen to them. Uh, first, let's go to the Brad Gushu, Mark Nichols interview. Thank you guys for taking the time. I know it's, it's busy with doing the, the photo shoot and everything else. And, but I want to start with, uh, I guess, the first question. How many years have you two played together? Too long. <laughs> uh, probably our 20th season. That's a yeah, good question. I'd, I'd have to actually count them out, but I, I, I would say it's over 20 for sure. Yeah. Over 20 years. Other than you went to play with Stoughton for a year or two in, two years, in yeah. Manitoba. Why was that? Yeah, yeah needed a break from... The grind of curling, and I actually took a year off, didn't play at all, really hadn't planned on coming back until I got a call from John Mead uh, a full year later after taking the season off and weighed the opportunity against, you know, the, the cons, I guess, and we decided to do it. Well, you know what? It's an Olympic year, so I want to talk about uh, the opportunity to be back in another Olympics after 15 years from the last one. I, I want to try to get into your mind because uh, you're a cerebral person and uh, yeah. how does it work? How are you thinking? Well, for me, I, I think the biggest reason I want to get back is now being a father and with my kids being 10 and 14, I think it'd be a pretty incredible experience to go and participate in the Olympics and have them be old enough to understand what we're going through and, and to be able to watch that. Uh, would have loved that to happen in person, but obviously there's no spectators this year. So if we are fortunate enough to go, they won't get that opportunity, but you know, they're going to be able to support us at home and watch on TV and see their dad playing at the Olympics. So that's kind of my biggest motivation is to, to provide that to them. Because when I went last time I was, you know, I wasn't even married at that time, um, let alone have kids. So just a different stage of my life. I think I'd appreciate it a lot more than what I did when I was 25 years old. I, you know, when you're 25 and you have that success early, you think it's going to come lots more in your career. And I learned pretty quickly after that, that it's, it's can take years, you know, it'll be 16, 16 years if, if we make it this year. So I think we'd appreciate it a whole lot more. Yeah. I, I agree with Brad, you know, we're in completely different stages of our lives now and having a family and someone to share that with 
uh, would be super important. And I do think, you know, when we were there 15 years ago, we really had no clue. The magnitude of it, but also the possibility of getting back, I think we'd enjoy this one much more uh, than we did the last one in terms of taking it all in. And we were so focused on the one the one goal um, that we may have missed out on some other opportunities that were there for us. That's a really good answer, actually, because it's true. And to uh, to expand on that, I'd like to hear a bit of the difference, a bit of the difference, but also how you're training now, trying to be ready to win at your experience level now versus back in 2005, what you did to get ready for that try. It's, it's, it's got to be a little different. Uh, dramatically different. I, I think going into the 2005 trials, we were playing every single week. And, and because we needed those games, we were you know, not as experienced as some of the teams we were going to play. And, and we wanted to gain that, that experience. And plus, we had to try and get Russ into it, uh, into the mix. So I think we played like two out every three weeks, if not more going into the last trials or uh, 2005 trials. Uh, this time around, three events leading into the trials. Total. Total. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So well, and, I, I, didn't, I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. So the, okay. part of the reason behind that is, is we're in a different place in our career. Like we don't need those games to be ready. This team as a unit has been together now for eight years. So it's not like we have to learn to play with each other. The biggest thing for us is to make sure that we're healthy, we're rested, and we feel good going in. And what we've learned over the last number of years going into the trials, or at least going into the latter part of November, early December, when the trials usually are, and we had the Canada Cup in other years, we always felt tired at that time of year because we had played so much. We had played six, seven, eight, nine, ten events up to that point, and we wanted to avoid that. So... You know, we've, we picked Oakville last week. We're here in Oakville again uh, for the slam, and then we have another slam, and then obviously the trials. So uh, not getting anywhere near as many games as some of our other teams, but we're going to be, I think, much more rested going into the trials than some others. Mark, your thoughts on, uh, on your scheduling off ice, not so much on ice, the training, um, so that in, in Brad's words, you're trying to be ready, fit, yeah. but not tired, ready, peaking at the right time, that's a lot of thoughts. Yeah, we've we've been planning it for a long time. We, we I think we've done a great job. We got the ice uh, available to us a little bit earlier than usual in St. John's, uh, which allowed us time for a training camp, full team. You know, Jeff's living in, in Edmonton now, so having the f- full unit together is important to us. So we've structured out our season where we play, have a training camp, or Jeff comes down, we have a training camp, then go play. We've been planning it for a long time, having three, four, five-day training camps with the four of us in, in St. John's uh, with coaches down helping us technically, you know, just working on some little things that we feel like are going to be our, our main area of opportunity to improve. You know, we're, we're not trying to make big changes here now. It's just where are we going to get our biggest bang for our buck when it comes to playing the event and the trials. really want to talk to you guys about being a Canadian team who has already been to the Olympics. That's why I'm asking you guys uh, versus, say, a real young team. Um, and teams from outside of Canada, a lot of times, they're sort of directed and run by the national coaches and, and situation there. But for you guys, you're sort of self-run. So you win. You win. End of November, you're going to the Olympic Games. All hell breaks loose. Yep. I'd love to hear your, your organization behind you to deal with the media, to deal with sponsors, to deal with that. Because I don't think a lot of people really know what goes on behind the scenes. 
to be prepared. Yeah, it, it really is a storm. And, and you have no idea what you're getting into until the day after and, and you wake up and all of a sudden you're thrown into a meeting and stuff starts coming at you. And then you get home and you realize everybody wants a, you know, a piece of you and wants some attention. And you know, it's a chaotic two or three months from winning the trials to, to go into the Olympics. And most teams, I don't think, are prepared for it. I think we have the luxury of having gone through it. Uh, and when we went through it again, we really, you know, we let Curling Canada kind of run it for us. And we realized as we were going through that there were times when we were slow to put our hand up and say, hold on now, we need to make some decisions for ourselves. And, and we made those decisions, but I think it was probably a little later than what we should. Uh, so I think with the, the stage of our career that we're at right now, if, if we are fortunate enough to go to the Olympics again, I think we're going to control the process very much. And, and I think it's going to be the four of us that are going to, that are going to own it. And we're going to dictate how, how things go, uh, because we've been there. And, and at the end of the day, when you go to the Olympics, whether you're successful or not, you want to look back and say, I did everything I could and I controlled it. This was on me. Uh, you don't want someone else make a decision that's going to impact you when you're, you're at the biggest moment in your life. And I think for us and, and for me in particular, that's what I want to feel. So, you know, if I made a poor decision leading up to it, that impacted us, I can live with that. If, if it came from someone outside the team, that's harder to deal with. Yeah, with the way your management mind, that's why I wanted to ask you about yeah. the management uh, angle. Mark, uh, coaching. The role of coaching in the modern-day curling game, it's changed quite a lot, I think, in the last 20 years. And you've got, of course, Jules Ochar, my coach for 30 years, and he's still with you today. The role of coaching on, on Team Gushu. Having Jules with us just adds that extra layer that we we didn't have prior in terms of rock scouting. He just, Jules is just a master with the numbers. He, he knows who's thrown what, what percentages are thrown, and basically takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for us. You know, something that we don't have to think about when we're on the ice. But also Jules, that experience that he has, you know, with yourself, didn't matter what situation we were in, that like he just looked the exact same. It could be the highest stress situation. You know, we we're playing in the Briar in St. John's, Newfoundland, the most pressure we've ever felt. And Jules sitting back and you're like, hey, dude, you awake here? And he's just like, no, you're doing good. Like, just yeah. get a little, it's a-okay. And it's just that, that calming factor for us was uh, very important. And I think, you know, certain situations you get yourself in, it's easy to get yourself wrapped up in, you know, the magnitude of it. And Jules is just there. It's like, it's going to be okay. And just, just to add to that, you know, Jules handles the rocks, but we have Jeff Thomas as well that works with, with us from a technical perspective. So, you know, love is mine. I've been working with him. Well, actually we've been working with him since probably we were 18, 18, 19 years old. Uh, so he knows our deliveries very well and can make adjustments, which is great. And then we have Aaron McGowan from a a mental perspective. Uh, so we have a, a coaching team as opposed to, you know, one coach. Now, Jules is the one that travels with us the most and, and sits on the bench. And that's mainly because of his experience and how cool he is under pressure. Uh, but also, if, if we get in the middle of a game, and as Mark said, we don't like a rock, Jules will tell us which one to throw. And, and generally, he's right. I would like to uh, ask you about a game, a situation, um, if you guys can remember. I think Mark will remember. Uh, Nicholas Adine, you're going to play Nick in the final. And you had played Red Rocks quite a lot in that event. Nick Adeen had played the Yellows on B and had shot over 90% two or three games in a row. You had a meeting as to which rocks you're going to take, and you liked some of the Reds. 
uh, and you were kind of hoping to take reds. Well, Nicodine just shot 93, 95. You just mentioned percentages. So you took yellow. Do you remember the game? Trying to think back now. And Oscar Erickson in the final actually shot 39% with the two reds because you took yellow. And I just wanted to bring that up. Okay. I wanted to see if you could remember that because that's, that's telltale. When you're going to take reds, Jules says, well, you could. Yeah, and, and Jules would only speak up if he was really confident in that yeah. situation. So when he speaks and says that, you're, okay, let's, we're, we're going to do that. And that's a trust we have in him because for him to speak in that moment, he's confident that this is the right move. Actually, I do remember that we scored five, I think, in the second or third end. We won that game pretty, pretty easily. But yeah, we just trust him. You know, he, he knows his stuff. He does his research and has a ton of experience. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Uh, so there you have it. Um, yeah, you, f- you forget how good those guys are and how they've gone back, did they say 16 or 17 years now? What stood out to me, Kevin and Warren, was it sounds like they have 28 guys working for them, <laughs> different guys. What, what about that, Kev? All these different guys who are, who are helping out teams away from curling. Yeah, I think, you know, that was one thing that we really wanted to get forward to everybody, all the listeners, is that how, how many people are behind the scenes? How many people are helping these teams try to get to the top of the podium? And and I really appreciate with Brad talking about how his first visit to the Olympics, he wasn't married yet. And then now with his kids curling, how much he'd love to get there and just so they could see the hard work and, and, and the results of all that hard work and let, let the kids learn the life lessons of, of that. So I, I, that was a different angle that I hadn't heard from anybody else. So I thought that was pretty cool. Warren, what'd you think of it? Well, I found it very... Uh Interesting about the support staff. And, you know, even as he sits today, he more or less has three people sort of working with him from a coaching point of view, technical, psychologist, Jules Ochar is kind of like their game ops guy. And then there's other support staff as you go into an Olympics and you start looking down the track, medical, training. We've talked at times of probably as we move forward, you're going to need two alternate players. So that's going to be six people that actually throw rocks. So I can see as this sport grows, the the staff for a curling team is going to be quite extensive. I guess it's not unlike golf. Uh, Certainly most of those players on the PGA Tour today, they have quite an entourage that looks after them, particularly the better guys. So I think it's probably where we're going to eventually uh, see things land uh, once this sport gets its some bigger wings. But uh, I thought it's kind of interesting that even the people that he has around him today, and I know Kevin had a lot of support people in his day, but Unfortunately, most of these teams aren't in the position yet to to have that type of thing, but I think it'll come. I want a, I want a psychologist to help me out through the day. I need, Lord I need, knows I, you need one. <laughs> I think I think your psychologist would need a psychologist. Yeah, they, they'd quit. Uh, um, Kevin, we hear we hear a lot about in sports, and we hear it in curling as well about peaking at the right time. I hear that all the time, and and it was brought up. Uh, in these inter- in the, in this interview as well about about peaking at the right time. How, how how do you possibly do that, Kevin? How how can you 
absolutely figure that out. That Of course, I'd love to peak at the right time, you know, to win the trials, but is there a system behind that? Do you play more curling, Kevin, or play less? Right. I, absolutely. You're right in both accounts. It depends who you are. And, and for Brad Gushu, with, you know, with his hip the way it is, there's no way he'd want to play too much. He's got to, you know, make sure that he's healthy and ready to go. Um, with him, you know, being such a, a good strategist and, uh, and a brilliant curler, obviously, um, for him, it was more important to, to practice more, play less, and be totally uh, ready uh, as far as uh, health-wise. Um, totally rested, ready to go. But other people like to play a lot. So it's, it's, I don't think there is a magic elixir. Yeah, well, can you imagine how much money you'd have, Jimmy, if, if you knew exactly how to have top athletes peak at the right time so that they all win? But the podium would be full of people. You can only have one at the top. And uh, so, you know, Brad's view, Brad Gushu's view, um, was not to play as much. And obviously, he's doing very well. Uh, next interview, Kev, you did was uh, with Brad Jacobs and Mark Kennedy. Uh, and uh, they, they both had lots to say. So check this out. Okay. Olympic year. You've both been in the Olympics more than once in one case, uh, but with different teams. I'd love to hear uh, how you guys are planning this season to be able to get to your second or third Olympic Games. You know, uh, it's something that you've always said. We would just love to get back because it was just so much fun. Uh, I think the big thing for our team is just not putting too much pressure on ourselves to do that. You know, we've been there. We've had that uh, opportunity and it would just be amazing to get back. But um, we just want to have some fun and play our best and ride some momentum and see where it takes us. So, Brad, um, how are you setting up this year in an attempt to peak at the right time? I guess your, your mindset as to how your team has done that. Yeah, so our plan coming into this season was we wanted to get on the ice and compete early. So we did that. We uh, played two uh, really great events in Oakville, got off to a really good start really in our first three events. But a good balance between uh, getting out and competing as well as rest and recovery like a lot of teams uh, are trying to do. And at the same time, just making sure that we don't put a whole lot of pressure on ourselves, knowing that it is an Olympic year. Like Mark said, just go out, have fun. We've got a really good plan and I'd say a really good uh, regiment set in place. And we're just going to follow that and uh, fingers crossed that it works out. Yeah, the importance, I guess, uh, of Oakville here, the slam, and then also two weeks uh, in Chestermere and the timing of those slams. Uh, that's something I thought about right away when I saw the dates, the importance of of the timing of the two slams this year. Yeah, it's perfect, right? You play a play a slam, get a week off, play a slam, get a week off, and then the Olympic trials. So it gives you time in there to practice if you need to, but also to rest and recover mentally and physically, and but also test yourself against the best before the, the trials. So I think it's a perfect setup to see some uh, terrific curling at those Olympic trials in Saskatoon. The setup, I guess, from a professional standpoint, you both know the chaos that happens the morning after you win the Olympic trials. The last time was your first time. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on your organization behind you that people don't see. Do so, you remember the morning after you won? Uh, yeah, the morning after we won, <laughs> yeah, it's a little blurry, uh, but well worth it. And we, we had a great time. But yeah, right after we won, um, you're kind of thrown into a little bit of a whirlwind. I know that we were, I was 28 years old, pretty young and naive at the time, really didn't know, uh, what to expect. We ascended to the top pretty quickly in a short period of time. We've got that under our belt. I think we're going to be a little bit more experienced. You know, if we were to hopefully, uh, be the team that represents Canada, I think we would be uh, a lot better prepared for everything that comes after you win the trials. And, uh, we hope that that's the case. 
So I'd like to get a little more detail as sure. far as the uh, the agency stuff, the PR yeah. stuff, the medical stuff, the sports psych stuff. Just the people that are behind you for the young people. This is for the junior teams. This is for the young curlers that are coming yeah, up. Yeah, you need that good team behind you. So, you know, we both times I've been, we've had a terrific group. You know, Scott Pfeiffer, Adam Enright, Jules Ochar, uh, John Dunn, the, the people that will manage everything outside of the curling because that two months you have between the trials and the Olympics it's so important to be mentally fresh physically fresh and ready to compete at your best and those other things can bog you down so quickly Mm -hmm. so you know whether it's tickets for family or flights or um, to your point the the agency stuff and the media and that needs to be taken care of otherwise you can get pretty bogged down and you can be exhausted before you even head off to the Olympics. So it's really important that that group is behind you taking care of those things because there's a lot going on behind the scenes that most people don't see. So we get a lot of messages on Inside Curling on the podcast and also just me personally wondering about curling because we're not a full-fledged professional sport. People are do other things. How is it possible to get it, dedicate the time to be able to compete when a lot of the teams you're going to compete against at this uh, Olympics or even World Championships or the Slam this week? Are, are professional curlers? It's a really good question. Um, a lot of the countries have adopted. Their curlers are full-time. That's what they do. Many, we've been told, that's all that they do, and they're on salary and whatnot. So, you know, we have our way here in, in Canada, as everybody knows, and we. I just think it's a little bit more of a, a juggling and a balance act. And um, a lot of the younger curlers from other countries seem to be groomed from a very young age, and many are in their 20s, early 20s, looking at this as a full-time professional gig. And now we're kind of the, the old guys on the block now in our uh, mid to late thirties. And I think that experience is going to pays off for us at this point. We've been doing this a really long time, but uh, certainly it's, it's a little bit more of a challenge when we do have family, we have careers, businesses, jobs, bosses, things like that. So it's a little bit more of a juggling act and, uh, but experience pays off, I think. This is where I was hoping to get into the weeds with you a little bit, Mark. Um, And that's going into the Olympic process. How many uh, teams are in the trials? How teams get into the trials? And where you feel it fits? Um, You just mentioned that you're you're kind of two of the older fellows on the block as far as uh, top players in the world. I'd love to hear your thoughts as to what you think to make sure we have a really good chance of getting to the podium. Yeah, you need your best teams at those trials. Now, Now, in my opinion, I would say nine is probably too many. But without getting into a super deep conversation, I would love for it to not be a crazy points chase for four years, right? What would you like it to be? uh, It's a good question. I think it has to be the combination of points as well as as winning some big events to prove that you can win those big events against the best teams and that that should get you a spot in the trials which it does at the moment but it still does feel like a pretty big points chase over three years and and you really don't want to be exhausted going into that olympic year so i'm looking forward to after this year having the powers that be sit down and discuss what is best going forward because i think we're at a time in our sport in this country where there probably needs to be some pretty big change how's canada going to keep its edge brad if edge, we yeah. if we actually indeed have an edge, I'm not positive we do. Do we but, have one anymore? Right. Uh, yeah. Or if we don't have the edge, how are we going to get the edge back? If we do have the edge, how are we going to keep it? Do we have an edge anymore? It seems to be dwindling. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think that we panic, though. I, I really don't. I still th- believe that the top teams in the world come from Canada, and we're out there and and competing, and, and everybody's trying to uh, do their own thing amongst their own teams to to get better and push one another 
I don't think we panic yet. Like Mark's saying, I think that uh, some changes need to be made. I agree with that. I don't have the answers. I don't know what those answers are. Uh, but hey, what what are we going to do? We'll see how the next uh, this next quadrennial goes. We'll see how this Olympics coming up goes. But yeah, it's been a little bit of a struggle on the international stage for Canada lately. We all know that. So I think that you know people are trying to think of what to do next. And we do it to ourselves, though, right? Sure, we do it to ourselves. We run terrific events. The Sportsnet runs the Grand Slams, <laughs> and they're international events. And we we bring the best international teams over here to play us and and beat us and learn. And then we go to the international stage and lose to them and are wonder why. <laughs> so in an effort to grow the sport worldwide, we're actually which, worked. which is great and fantastic for the sport of curling and the professionalism of it. But as a result, we're going to lose that edge as the best in the world. And is that a bad thing? Is that a bad thing? I, I mean, I love seeing the sport grow. I love seeing it more competitive. You know, I'd love to see Canada on the podium more often, but it's not going to. It's not realistic with our current system of us growing the sport all over the world. Kevin, let's start with you. I I was totally interested in what they had to say about where Canada is on the world stage. And uh, you heard them both say, do we have an edge anymore? I don't think so. Uh, but they didn't think it was that bad. Right. And I think they're right. Um, it Does Canada have an edge any longer? I, there's no way. Uh, Bruce Mowat and, and Nicholas Ledeen, when it comes to Olympic Games, are probably going to be favorite one, favorite two. Um and then the Canadian team, whoever it might be, is probably three. And then you got Peter DeCruz and John Schuster and continue down the line. You've got lots of really good podium potential. But you're right. Um, it was an interesting discussion to hear about the pro, the professional curlers from a lot of the countries that are going to be at the Olympic Games and the Canadian curlers who, for a lot of it, uh, have a second occupation or first occupation, curling being second or curling and then a second occupation, whichever way you want to look at it. And that's going to be something that we, as a, you know, inside curling, we're going to have to talk about for years to come because it's really important when, say, in Scotland, Bruce Mallet, they they work a, an eight-hour day, all curling, every day. And uh, over time, you're going to get very good. Whereas for um, Brad Jacobs, um, you know, he he works on the, he works a, a job, and then you know if it's in the the practice time and the game time and and all of that so can you can canadians keep up that's a question to go forward uh we're gonna have to keep talking about it definitely uh interested in whoever wins uh the trials on the men's and women's side out of canada and then watching it in beijing and see how they compete this time versus say in in pyeongchang versus uh before that and so on um very interesting uh to see how we handle it going forward because uh yeah, both Mark Kennedy and Brad Jacobs. I can't just say Mark and Brad because, of course, there's too many of them kicking around. Um, just how, how their thoughts were on the pro curling versus the way Canada does it. Warren, um, they, they did say, both of them, uh, they're not real firm uh, about the uh, you know qualifying system or this point system with Canada. Uh, but both of them said it needs to change, but they weren't sure how. What do you think of that, Warren? It's an excellent point. I think it's the same things we've been saying uh, about this whole setup for quite some time. Uh, exactly what is the answer? I, I think there's probably a number of ways to look at it, but I think they're even suggesting now, which I haven't heard a lot of players come out and openly say that, that the system's broken. 
and we need to get all the parties that are involved with this in a room and figure out how to make it better. I thought the other thing they emphasized about that is the players need to be part of this. And it's without question, if you look at the women's side of the trials here right now, and it's a good point, I think, as you go forward. And no, we're not harping on the same old story. But on the women's side, three of the teams are from Manitoba, three are from Alberta, two are from Ontario. And if you put McCarville in there, actually three are from Ontario. So if you look at a Scotties of those nine teams based on that, only four of them will be able to be in the Scotties. It's still, to me, bizarre that we can have a Canadian championship and uh, five of our top-ranked teams can't play in it because they've got to be eliminated at a provincial level. So that's not helping the development of what we're trying to do here at all. And I was even musing to myself when I was looking at the European championship of the ABC divisions. I'm going like, maybe this could even be partly rectified if we had two or maybe even three teams from certain provinces, and we did go into A, B, and C type of divisions. I don't know. There's such a, it's such a difficult topic to challenge, but uh, we've got to do something different. And I hope that everybody that's involved with this stuff has the where for all to sit down and to start to talk about it, because that's the beginning. Um, Kevin, you talked about uh, the Olympic trials, of course, and where they are now. Uh, they're, they're kind of, they're halfway through, Kev. Who's got the tougher draw for the, the bottom half of the round robin? everybody <laughs> trials is tough you know and that that i don't know if there is such a thing but the three men's teams are pulling away and that that's kind of what i see happening over the last few days you've got gushu Kui, and jacobs pulling away now who's going to come in first and get to that final spot versus the semis that is a complete toss-up all three teams as we tape this show are at one loss each on the women's side um flurry and jones are going to fight it out for first place uh the, the the exciting part there is third placed on the women's side. Who knows? It's absolutely who knows. It's crazy, which is great. Um, McCarvel's probably playing the most consistently out of all that group of teams. Um, but who knows? Oh, boy, you've got some great teams in there fighting it out. And, and uh, you know, you get to that fourth loss, you're probably gone in the women's side. You've got to stay to three or less. Very good. Well, uh, it'll make for a good weekend of curling. Um this is interesting, boys. I've got to tell you both. I met you guys many, many years ago, okay, uh, Warren and Kevin. And uh, I would never have predicted at that time that I would be spending my 60th birthday with Kevin Martin and Warren Hansen, okay? I turned 60 today, okay? So, uh, however, I may, be, I may still be the young guy in this crew. I, hey, Martin, <laughs> you've got me by a year or two, don't you? <laughs> huh? Nice shot, Jim. <laughs> You you stick curler you Kevin. <laughs> yeah. That was awesome today. <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, great show, boys, uh, and and so much great curling going on. Uh, love your comments, fellas, and we love to hear from you. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of us, uh, drop us an email inside curling at gmail uh, Big thank you to our sponsors: Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Goldline, Nestle Boost, and Meridian. Uh, they're they're on board with us for every edition, including our special ones. And a uh, special thank you to Rod Paulson, who's doing all our Facebook stuff. Uh, it's great. And uh, have a look at it if you haven't. So, Okay, fellas, carry on. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Inside Curling. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. <laughs>